Welcome to the My Personal Football Coach Youth Soccer Player Development Podcast, episode 21 with Ian Barker. Welcome to MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's Soccer Player Development Podcast. Discover all the secrets, hints and tips about soccer player development and soccer coaching from some of the leading figures in world soccer. Here's your host, Saul Isaacson-Hurst. Hi guys, welcome back to another show. This week we've got a fantastic guest. It's Ian Barker, who's Head of Education for the United Soccer Coaches. Uh, this is the biggest soccer community in the world. Uh, they also host the United Soccer Coaches Convention, uh, which is also the biggest soccer coaches convention in the world. If you don't know, it's uh, five or six days of of uh, just uh, fantastic sessions by some of the best coaches in the world at all levels. Um, we're talking international coaches, first team managers, grassroots coaches and also lectures uh, and meetings. An amazing place to go and uh, not only improve your knowledge and see some great work but also connect uh, with coaches from all around the world. So this is kicking off uh, uh, in a couple of weeks in January. Uh, the 16th of Janet starts, really looking forward to it in Philly this year, was in Los Angeles last year, so really looking forward to it to myself, it's an amazing uh, amazing week and uh, looking forward to connecting to loads of people, uh, many many coaches from all around the world. Ian's got a really interesting story, uh, his journey uh, from England to America into full time coaching, um, working as a technical director now for United Soccer Coaches and we discuss all things uh, related to American soccer and the highs and lows that he's seen and uh, what the future holds. So a really excellent show. I'm sure you're going to enjoy this one. Um, just a reminder that our apps is now available. The Dynamic Ball Mastery Program apps now available on Google and Apple Store. Just uh, go to My Personal Football Coach, sign up for the Dynamic Ball Mastery Program and then download the app. Uh, really happy how it's coming along and the feedback. Uh, supporting players with uh, technical exercises, ball mastery exercises and improving uh, physical literacy as well. So uh, that's going from strength to strength. Uh, in case you don't know, the Dynamic Ball Mastery is an online technical homework program. Uh, it's created so that you know players and parents, anyone can pick it up. It's idiot proof if you like. There's an easy to follow course, how to improve your technical excellence but then also improve your explosive dynamic movement as well which is so important in the game these days whether you're playing in academy or you're aspire to play pro or you're just a, a grassroots or rex player. So really ideal for players of all levels. Uh, really excited how it's been going on. Obviously embraced by pro clubs and amateur clubs and federations around the world so you make sure you check it out and then also don't forget remember we've got a special offer for a club partnership 50% uh, off for the first year if you're signing up to trial trial it support your players by giving them all access to the uh, to the app um, so you really do add value to your club um, and what you get you're giving to your players but also supporting your coaches with uh, online technical resource for your coaches as well which includes you know hundreds of techniques and training exercises but team sessions as well which are ball mastery and 1v1 related make sure if you see me at the convention you come and say hello and if you uh, if you're not at the convention just drop me an email anyway and we can get you connected with that but uh, without further ado let's get into the show so Ian Barker welcome to the show Thank you, Sol. Uh, can you just give us a little brief uh, brief outline of your um, your playing and coaching experience up to this point, please? Sure, absolutely. Um, I was fortunate enough to grow up in uh, Essex in England um, in the uh, in the seventies, and then my family took us down to Devon, 
So we all knocked around as kids. We, we, we would appear for Plymouth and Exeter and Torquay on a rotating basis. Um, but there was really not going to be a professional career for me, uh, especially once I finished my A-level. So I went to University of Warwick, had a great four years at University of Warwick in Coventry, and then came over to the States in 87. At that time, the only pro football um, in America was really indoor football. Um, so I uh, lived in Madison, Wisconsin. We played in an ethnic league, amateur ethnic league, really high standard. It was really interesting, Serbians and Croatians and Polish, um, Germans, and then expats and things. So did that. Um, but then found quite quickly that my vocation was probably going to be uh, more in coaching than playing. And when we were at Warwick, Dave Sexton, the former manager of Man United in the England under 20, 21s, um, he, he'd actually coached us a little bit because he used to live in Coventry. So he got me into my FA badges. And then when I came to the States, I took my US soccer badges and then my uh, NSCAA, uh, which is the company I work for now called United Soccer Coaches. So I had, I had a lot of education, coaching badges by the time I was in my mid-20s. And that's what got me on the coaching path way over the playing path. Okay, so just tell us a little bit about the uh, the organisation you work for now, United Soccer Coaches. Yeah, so United Soccer Coaches used to be the NSCAA, National Soccer Coaches Association of America, and we rebranded to United Soccer Coaches because we're a little bit more global now, so we took the word America out. Um, it's a membership organisation of coaches from the grassroots up to the professional uh, managers. So the professional managers of the MLS are members, we provide a ton of services, so we provide insurance, which is a real big one in America, medical and liability insurance. We do all of the awards and rankings, so if you hear about people that are all Americas in soccer, uh, academic or playing, that's typically us. We run a massive, massive convention, which will do about 11,000 hotel nights in January. I believe you're familiar with that. Um, and then a big part of what we do is educational programs. So everything from online one-hour courses to week-long residential courses, uh, a lot of work with the grassroots, but all the way up through um, some of the pros. So, for example, Chris Ramsey, who was at uh, QPR and Spurs and is, is running around in Great Britain somewhere, he took one of our courses when he was over here a few years ago. So we've actually got some members of the LMA and the Professional Football Coaches Association that are educated by us. So how many members have you got that in the... Uh... Um, on a, organization. On a, on a, yeah, it's about 30,000, uh, primarily American, but we have um, a pretty strong international group, um, uh, quite a number of Europeans, uh, many who come over to the show every January to Philadelphia or Baltimore or Los Angeles. Uh, but the number is typically around the 30,000 mark, which, according to all uh, studies, would make us the biggest coaches, uh, football coaches association in the world. Okay, so you're um, you head of coaching at this huge organisation, but let's let's take a little bit of step backwards. I mean, tell us about your first coaching job. What was that? Yeah. Well, um, my first coaching job would have been um, my second year at, at Warwick at, at college because um, I was a mug and I got the job as sort of club secretary, and then I had to bring the uh, local FA in to do our prelim badge. And then from that, we ended up coaching, you know, the, the, the senior players within the team as player coaches would coach the college lads. So we did that. And that was that was quite good fun. But when I came over to America, I'd only been here five or six days and I got a job working in a, a camp and they gave me nine high school girls to coach as sort of my pod for the week. 
and really hadn't seen women football players before uh, in the late 80s. And um, I certainly hadn't seen women football players of the caliber of these young women. So I coached these young 16, 17 year old women and they all went on to get Division One scholarships. So they got their colleges paid for and they played at a really, really high level. Um, my primary uh, my primary coaching in this country has been in the college setting. So the University of Wisconsin, uh, where we had full scholarships. So we had some really high level players, lads that went on to play in the MLS. Um, and then I coach in a program here, which is a, kind of like a youth national team program. It's called Olympic Development, um, which is a very select process, a lot of tryouts and selections. And I've been fortunate because that program's taken me to South and Central America. Um, and it's taken me to Europe extensively coaching youth football um, in tournaments like uh, Blue Dens in Austria and uh, Biela in Turin. Um, so that's been that's been really good. So the sort of the youth academy level as well as the college level. And then just tell us a little bit about your um, your role in, in Minnesota as uh, the, the director of coaching. Yeah. So this is um, this is quite fascinating, really. So if. If your listeners are familiar with sort of county FAs and how they work, what happens in the US is the, the states have very large youth organizations. There, there, there are different organizations, but there's a, one called US Youth Soccer, and it divides into state associations. So I was the state director for Minnesota, which is not, you know, it's not the center of the, the football universe in this country by any means, but it had 140 clubs and 80,000 players spread across an area about the geographical size of England. And myself and one other guy were the technical directors. So our job was to run the elite player program, to run the coach education program, and then, much like an FA technical rep, to get out to these clubs on an ongoing basis and provide grassroots support. So that was my, uh, my coach education leader role within Minnesota. So I'm interested, interested in that role. How did that work in terms of, I mean, who, who gave you the... Uh... Who drove the, you know, the methodology, if you like, you know, the, the way that you wanted the boys to play? Was did you guys come up with that, or was it was it top down from U.S. Soccer? All right, so it's a good question. So, in the at the time, U.S. Um, the U.S. national team programs in U.S. Soccer weren't giving a tr tremendous amount of guidance on playing styles. They do now, and I, I'll come back to that in a second here. But at the time, um, we we were really stylistically based on the geographical region of the country. So there were four broad regions, the East Coast, the Midwest, uh, the West Coast and the South. And based on um, population density, cultural diversity and very often climate would tend to um, tend to uh, differentiate the playing styles. So in the Midwest, um, in Minnesota, for example, you can only play outdoors about six months of the year, maybe seven. So you get you get pretty hardy players because they play in extreme temperature changes in the summer. It's really, really, really hot. But in the winter, it's ridiculously cold. Um, a, quite a Scandinavian um, original population base with obviously much more ethnic diversity now uh, because of immigration and migration and refugee and asylum. So but we had a we had a fairly northern European style. Of course, when we run into the West Coast, when we would take our team to play the West Coast kids, You'd, you'd see a much more Latin style of play, uh, inspired perhaps by Spanish-speaking cultures that are, and also the climate and the field conditions, because the field conditions are very often bake, baked uh, hard, almost like an Australian cricket wicket rather than a, than a, than a soccer uh, football field. 
So you, you can do, you, you, we had freedom, but we also had a, a general structure. So right now, US soccer directive down to uh, grassroots youth development is more along the lines of, of playing out of a 4-3-3. That's the sort of general uh, recommended style for this nation, or at least the formation. Um, and then, of course, much like the pretensions all around the world, we're trying to play out the back and we're trying to build through the midfield and we're trying to press high. But I think everybody says they're trying to do that. Um, but uh, uh, so, yeah, so we've got we've got strong influences because we have, you know, we're such a diverse country. We have the, the Latin influence. But then, of course, we have everything we see from Western and Northern Europe as well. And how is that in terms of, you know, you're, you're doing coach education, you're trying to spread the word. How was that? interacting with uh with the parents you know maybe novice parents and also then parents who maybe like you said it's a, a real hotbed of you know different cultures everyone has their own opinion on how they should play what was that like in trying to get these messages across yeah it, it's really interesting because um your listeners who've uh, taken their fa badges when they've gone to the courses they've probably been in a course with a lot of people of a very similar ex uh, experience set probably similar levels of playing similar levels they're coaching at as they work through their FA licenses. Um, in this country, you could go and do a course and you could literally have a lad or a lass who has played professional football um, and is in their late 30s, and you could have a, a soccer mum or soccer dad beside you because that's the nature. It's very opportunistic. Everybody can sort of come. So one of the things when you teach is you have to get a real good sense of the room and then when you're respectfully dealing with the very naive questions of the novice is you actually tie the more experienced candidates in the course into that learning environment for them. And then occasionally you might flip and say to the, the grassroots coach, the more novice one, look, just for a second, I just need to talk to this person about, you know, the difference between what Ronaldo's doing for um, Real Madrid as opposed to the difference between what Messi's doing for Barcelona. But as an instructor, you can't be too locked into your content because of this type of diversity you're alluding to. Um, the, we tend in this country to pull too much examples from English Premier League. And what we're trying to do more, and more often than not is get our American audience watching the MLS and the NWSL. And then our reference points would come from those leagues, the American leagues. The problem is that the viewing numbers for the for, uh, English Premier League are so high that if you really want to get your point across, there's a better chance they know about the Man City, Man United game from yesterday than they do about the Seattle, uh, Toronto national championship game, the league championship game that happened here on Saturday. So you've, you, you've got to be sensible while you're still trying to promote the American game. And then looking at the, um, you know, the binary opposites, if you like, if you're looking at, you know, for beginner players, you've maybe got a lot of parents who've never played the game before. How do you support them in trying to improve te the technical areas of a player's game? And they maybe, you know, they just haven't had that experience. And then looking then at the other side of the uh, the opposite side of the coin, if you like, with elite players, what's that environment like for elite players? How much support do they get? And is there an infrastructure there for, to help them push them through? Yeah, well, let's let's just start at the elite level because it's, it's a fairly, fairly quick answer. And that is to say that um, <coughs> the 20 MLS teams, 22 MLS teams, excuse me, um, they currently run academies which are fully covered. So it's a huge shift in our culture because our culture has always been a pay-to-play culture. So at least in the MLS clubs, the best players 
are participating regardless of their ability to pay, which is huge. Of course, 22 <laughs> franchises across the country the size of America is still not good enough. So the next level down after MLS, the elite youth clubs, which still pay to play, are finding financial structures which allow them to bring in at least some scholarship players. So I, I think slowly, but increasingly intelligently, we're actually make, we're identifying elite players and making it possible for them to develop. Of course, the challenge is what are the applying opportunities from there? Because the MLS is still quite small. The, the salaries are quite modest. And we're such a heavily education country that when you pull a boy or a girl out of their two or four year college opportunity, that's quite a derailment of their <laughs> typical life path. So that's, that's the top end. At the grassroots level, what we're suggesting to the mum and dad coaches that, that really don't have any football sense is we're trying to encourage them to understand just basic child development. So how you communicate, learning styles, activity. And then we're trying to give them enough content in terms of training activities, training protocols, methodologies, that even if they don't have a great deal of technical knowledge, they're allowing the kids repetition in a technical space and creating opportunities where the kid will ultimately resolve the technical challenge. So, for example, if we make the goal eight feet wide but two feet high, the kid will keep the ball low. The coach doesn't have to tell him that if the kid wants to score. He's got, he or she's got to find a technical ability to keep the ball low. Unfortunately, too often we make the goals really big, so the kid just walks up and whacks it in the top corner and there's no technical component. So it's difficult, and I think because of the amount of great media in football in the, in the world right now, most coaches, even the five, five and six-year-old, coaches the five and six-year-olds, they want to talk tactics, and nobody really wants to teach technique unless it's a commercial product like Corva where it's taught in isolation. So um, and I think most of us would say we need to get back to proper technical training when we can. Well, it's funny. I was speaking to Chris Ramsey last week, actually. You mentioned him. And he yeah. said the same thing. He said uh, people just uh, don't want to teach the basic techniques anymore. Maybe they think it's below them or something, you know, even at academy level. You know, maybe we're uh, taking technique for granted, maybe. Yeah, I... I... You know, I watched, I just, there was a thing on Twitter recently where um, I think somebody put up a, a clip of Man City doing a kind of a, an un, unopposed technical warm up around mannequins and poles. And the person that posted it said, I'm just waiting to get slaughtered by somebody on Twitter who's going to tell me that you can't teach and rehearse technique in isolation. Um, and this was like Man City and it was quite good. So I think. I think it's actually we've kind of sort of gone full circle at the elite level. There is still a ton of emphasis on technical repetition. Chelsea warmed up the other day for the Champions League game and they were just 15 yards apart playing one and two touch back and forth without moving anywhere. And it was just a warm up. I, I get it. But, you know, if Eden Hazard's going to go out and touch the ball 120 times before he kicks off in a Champions League match or 500 times, that should be good enough for a five and six year old. But what most people want to do is tell you they play a 4-4-2 or a, if they plan four a side, a 1-2-1, but they can't tell you whether the kids can kick it, pass it, shoot it, dribble. So I, I would agree with Chris on that one for sure. So in, that, so in terms of that, as, well, we'll come on to the course in a minute. I want to come back to that. So just, just interested again in the, in the elite player development there. So for instance, in Minnesota, who would be the MLS, MLS team there? You know, how, 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 how access? And then also, how, what does... 
how where does the ODP program sit amongst that as well? I mean, in terms yeah. of you know, does one have a priority or the other? Is one a better uh, pathway for players? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. So in Minnesota, they have a brand new um, MLS franchise uh, called Minnesota United. They were previously uh, <clears throat> Minnesota United in the U sorry NASL, so they were a second division team, but they fronted the franchise money, and now they're one of the the, the major franchises. So um, Adrian Heath, formerly of Everton, is the coach of Minnesota United. So in that in that city, what happens is um, the, the best players that the club identifies come in and are, are fully scholarshiped to train and play with Minnesota United with a long-term goal of signing some of them to professional contracts or selling them on. The Olympic Development Program is now the quote-unquote second-tier program. But in Minnesota, what they've done is that's run as the second second program. So they train at the same place. And if the professional club wants to pull one of these kids that's paying to play into their scholarship environment, the ODP program welcomes that transition because the idea here is to push the players through. So in, in Minnesota, the kid plays for an amateur club. He's, he is paying to play for that amateur club. The ODP program comes in and says, come and do state training. So now you play for Minnesota state team. And then when he's playing for Minnesota state team or she is, in the case of boys, it would be a he, obviously, um, he can then transition up to the pro club. And then also if the pro club bit, cans a kid, he can go back down to ODP. And so you can at least have some safety net for players too. That's, um, that's, so that's, that's, pay, that's pay for players well than the ODP. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, it, it, there are, there are, we're a country of 50 states. We're actually 55 youth soccer associations because Texas and California and a couple others are so big. Um, so many of the states will sponsor the ODP, the elite program, off of the dues of the masses, out of the, uh, the, the, the subscriptions of the masses. But in some cases, it remains a pay-to-play environment, yeah. And how many, how many players would you typically have in an ODP program? Okay, so in the state of Minnesota, um, on the boys and girls side, when we started with the 12-year-olds, which was more of an open opportunity, you didn't have to make the first round of a tryout in any sense. It was kind of a development program, but we'd have 1,200 kids sign up for that. Um, wow. And if you look at if you look at Minnesota, we're kind of a unique state, so that just a ton of kids from uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul, and then you'd have to drive three hours to Duluth or a couple of hours to Rochester, where you have a much smaller group of kids that you would do more regional. Um, but you're looking at, you know, across the state is a six-hour drive north to south or five hours east to west. So if you're really going to cover everybody, um, you've got to drive, and the population densities are not great. If you're in a, in a different area like people that on your, your uh, podcast, like Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey – um, massive population density so you can see a hundred kids and then drive 30 minutes and see another group of kids so the country's um country's really interesting from that point of view interesting so then so then you make the uh the move to the NSCAA as it was mm -hmm. then just tell us a little bit about how that worked how that came about yeah um I I did 10 years with the state association which we discussed and then on my 10th anniversary I figured I I'd I was I wanted to I wanted to leave that position before 
other people realized I should. So it was a good 10 years was a nice round number. And my assistant coach or my colleague, he took the position. So it was really good. And then I went and coached a college for four years. Really enjoyed it. Great lads. But in the American college game, the playing season is only about three months long. And so I was I actually found after four years I was looking for a new challenge. Um, based on my career path, there weren't many obvious jobs. This was one of them because this is quite a unique job as a, a national leader in coaching education. So I threw my resume in with no expectation of getting a um, call back. But I thought it would be a good process to go through just personal, professional growth and development. And then um, by uh, dumb luck, more than judgment, I went through various rounds of the interview process and was hired. And that was six years ago. And um, what I've been trying to do a lot for the last six years is integrate, manage, balance off our educational programs with those of our sovereign FA, which is U.S. soccer. So U.S. soccer out of Chicago is our FIFA affiliate. My organization is a member but we've been doing more in the coaching education space historically, perhaps, than U.S. soccer, at least uh, up until about 10 years ago. So now we have this kind of positive but also uneasy world in U.S. soccer education where there are actually two educational bodies. Yeah, I mean, so I, I remember my time in America, I was always, at first you were a little bit, I was a little bit confused and know which one, you know, which one to go for because you both have the steps, you both have an A license, both are very, you know, held highly in esteem, you know, I wouldn't say, you know, even one or one would is even, you know, the, the, the uh, US soccer ones even thought of as higher. So interesting. So tell, tell us that work having those sitting, you know, those dual pathways. Yeah. Um, so what I, when I first came to the country, uh, much like yourself, sort of a bit confused, I took the US soccer badges um, because I just thought I should go straight to the FA. Really enjoyed them. Tick the box. And then I went and took the NSCA ones, which seemed to me less essential for my career. But I'd heard really good things about the educational content um, and I really enjoyed enjoyed them. So I, I'm very comfortable across what we have now is U.S. soccer has got a licensing, um, which ultimately should impact MLS coaching um, and the very highest levels of coaching in this country. We still don't really have a very good enforcement policy. But if I was advising a young uh, male or female that wanted to be a full-time coach in this country, I would suggest you go U.S. soccer first, because then you've got the FIFA award of that country. Our courses have become um, much more towards the grassroots, the coach who has identified their own coaching ceiling. They want to just coach college or high school or youth soccer, and they don't really need to go through the rigor and expense and time of the license pathway, which really now is lending itself more towards professional youth development and professional players. Um, so so they, they offer different things. The big innovations that have happened recently, just real quick, US soccer has used a um, online database and educational tool, um, which they've kind of lifted from the German model. And so what they were able to do with that was extend the learning period so people come in for a week they go away but they interface with their instructors online and then they come back in six three months six months later which is all you can do on a country our size great great initiative um, but still extremely expensive 
the initiative that we've gone with, we've gone a different route, but I think a really good one is if you take our higher awards, you are not assessed in the field component at the course anymore. What we're going to do now is we're going to have you in for a week of directed learning. When you're ready, we will send an instructor to you to your environment to assess you. So now you get more of a mentorship and we evaluate you working with the age group, the gender in the environment that you work in, as opposed to at the course. So we're all trying to reconcile the size of this country and the challenges and create increasingly more intelligent education. Uh, you're the English FA have just started doing that as well, actually, on their courses. So I did the level four advanced youth and the same. They came to the club as a Chelsea at the time and they yep. evaluate there. And I think actually that's a good idea. Like you say, it's good to see a coach in their actual environment and with their actual players rather than a manufactured one with, you know, you're trying to run a session with some coaches or players you don't know. I think it's really good, but there's a bit of a debate here. Some of my, some peers have said they don't necessarily agree with it because they don't necessarily believe, you know, it's a real test and exam conditions. But, you know, for me, it's getting to see a coach in their actual environment is a lot more, you know, you get a lot better reading of what their, their capabilities are. Uh, well, so to the people that, that criticise the initiative your FA's taken, how, what is the point so the getting, you know, the other candidates at the end of the week when they're all knackered and you've got to pull off your 20 minute session. And I think that's really difficult if you are, you know, in some environments, if you haven't been a pro or coach at the pro level, because there might be pros on the course. I think if you're a female and the majority of the other candidates are male, that's really difficult. And, you know, at the, certainly, as I said before, the, at the, the beginning levels, there's a great diversity. So we have college coaches, but we have people that coach 12, 13 year old kids. And the 12, the coach of 12, 13 year old kids might be a master coach of 12 and 13 year olds. And if you gave the college coach or the pro coach 12 and 13 year olds, it'd be a disaster. So I, I, I would tend to disagree with the, with the critics. Um, what I think, and also, do I need to pass and fail you? What, I'm not quite sure if we've got people that have sought education um, and they want to do it right for the game, charging them a lot of money, making them commit a lot, and then turning around and saying, you didn't meet our standard, has a place when we're getting at the highest levels of the game. But I think at grassroots and, and the intermediate stage between grassroots and pro, I think we should be encouraging coaches to get educated, not uh, not making it miserable and so how how many um i mean do you get a lot of uh, from the pro game then from the upper levels coming in doing the 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 top level courses uh right now in this country because um we have uh, we're inspired by some dutch educators in the federation and they've just created the first u.s soccer pro license more of the ex-pros are going into the u.s soccer pathway what we've done quite well with is Canadians, Europeans who have come over to this country and they can't access the U.S. soccer courses because they're not allowed in them or there's barriers to uh, barriers to that. So Steve Rutter, who was with the English FA, he and I did our premier license here together. He went off to Olympiacos Olympi uh, and coached in Champions League. So he did a premier with us, like I say, Chris Ramsey. Um, I would say right now in my organization, we're very strong in the college coach environment, which is a highly professional environment, but still working with college players. So, um, you know, we're not going to get Bruce Arena or Ziggy Schmidt or Jurgen Klinsmann or Jill Ellis in our courses. Um, but, 
but there's certainly uh, enough enough good demand to have meaningful coach education programs. So yes, you mentioned college there. Let's just come on to that because I think that's a really interesting uh, part of the player pathway for players. Like you said, it's a really important part of the culture over there going to university. Uh, I've always had this question, Mark, about, like you mentioned earlier, that the the season only being three or four months. Do you think that's a potential negative? You know, players playing so short at that, such an important part of their, well, it's all, every stage is an important part, is it? Do you think that's a potential issue? And also, from what I hear, it's very much, you know, three games in a week. It's very much about a physical you know, the physical demands rather than the technical, tactical nuances of it, just because it's such a gruelling intensity? Yeah, that's what you've described is absolutely true. Um, and the top programmes, uh, so Stanford University just won their third straight national championship. Those programmes have asked to have the, um, the season extended over two terms. So um, right now it all happens between August and December. So it's a sort of about three month season. If they could get it extended into the spring, now you take the 25, 30 games, but you spread them out over six months. So the, the, the condensed nature of the college season, you're absolutely right. The tactical piece really does go out the window because it's just physical maintenance. A good college player can probably get about eight months of meaningful football con, uh, um, contact time with coaches in their regular season, in their off-season, and then their summer semi-pro season or amateur semi-pro season. So it's not terrible in terms of the amount of content. Um, it's not like it's three months and they're done because there's, there's an ongoing program. Obviously, that doesn't mirror what a young European player, um, Central South American player could experience. But again, college here is so critical in so many facets of society. And there's really not enough meaningful professional development. I mean, 22 pro clubs, and we have 320 million people. The other thing that's kind of interesting, which I just real quick, in 2014, the Americans made the second round, or US made the second round of the World Cup. England didn't, Italy didn't, Spain didn't. Of that squad that lost to Belgium in the second round, 11 of them had played at least two years of college football. So they were on the world stage at 26 years old. So they're a couple of years older than the, the, sort of the, the counterparts in most of the European South American countries. But there's, there's enough quality happening here that we can still put out a team that doesn't come from exclusively a traditional super professional environment. The, the trick will be the expansion of MLS and then the subsequent expansion of what's called USL, which is our second division, where young people can maybe do a bit of college on the side, but can commit to a more full-time professional environment. And then I think you'll see younger players making it. So Christian Pulisic, who's at Borussia Dortmund, he's an outlier because he, he had the passport, so he could get there when he was 16. Um, most American boys, uh, at least on the boys' side, can't get out of this country until they're 18. And then they're risking going to Europe or possibly to Mexico. And obviously, a lot of parents don't want to take that risk uh, when that means turning your back on college. So there's a, there's a lot of um, uniqueness about what we do. So, then, so moving on then to the, the uh, national team, what's your thoughts on the, on the recent World Cup failure and uh, what needs to be changed to improve things? Yeah, um, it's unfortunate 
but I, I do think there's, and it's a common argument here, there is that, that notion that maybe this, this quite a disaster actually um, sort of scorches the earth and we, and we look at it again. So certainly the, the squad will be reinvigorated, uh, uh, re-energized because some of the players are now, they're not going to be in the next cycle. So Christian Pulisic, some of the top young players in the MLS will get their opportunity where perhaps um, some of the senior players like the Clint Dempsey's and the, the Michael Bradley's have, have just had the squad kind of locked down. There was also a big challenge before the last disappointment because Klinsman was charismatic and very popular with the, um, the president of US soccer. But his introduction of Jermaine Jones and Fabian Johnson and the German players caused a lot of problems within the squad. There's no doubt that that, that, that messed things up a little bit. So um, th I think the hire will be important, whether they go with an American coach who surrounds himself with some senior um, coaches with international experience. Um, but in CONCACAF, which has three and a half bids for the uh, World Cup, you know, with Mexico and, and the US, I, I think this is really a, a glitch, not a, a systemic problem. The other interesting thing is we're going through a, the leader of US soccer, the president, which is a, a non-paid but extremely influential role, uh, was formerly Sunil Gulati, and he's just decided not to run again. So there is a presidential election right now, and then that person will be the person that sets the direction for the professional staff and makes the hire of the national team coach. So, you know, there's a lot of, you know, new things coming here for sure. And, uh, I mean, you mentioned it earlier, as I, I often glimpse onto Twitter, what's your thoughts on um, promotion relegation, which I can see is so much, uh, so much emotion being talked about that, that. Yeah, well, it's, it's so anti um, the US sports culture. Um, but I think, I think there is a way to do it and honor the extreme expense that it requires to, to run an MLS franchise. So we have a thing called the Open Cup, which is like our FA Cup. And it's been really good the last couple of years because the, clearly the playing level within the second tier is closer to the playing level of the first tier than the financial wherewithal. So if it costs $100 million or more to buy an MLS franchise, um, and, and you can run a second division team for a couple of million, but you can get some really, really good players because the, 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 the super quality is not there at the MLS. So it's quite good when you see Cincinnati, which is a second division team, give a first division team the run for the money and they do it on a consistent basis. If you think back um, for your listeners who are more of my generation, so uh, in my case, 53 years old, Back in the day when the team that finished bottom of the old English fourth division could potentially be kicked out and a, and a non-league team could come in, that hardly ever happened because of the, the guidelines that prevented the non-league team coming up. Didn't have the right ground, didn't have the right safety, didn't have the right financials. So I think it would be possible to suggest that maybe one or two MLS teams in a, in a number of years, have to play off against the best of the second division and then stick the second division with requirements. You've got to have X amount of fan base. You've got to have X amount of money in the bank. Um, so I think it could happen. It's not going to happen tomorrow, but I think, I think if we're going to really be a, a soccer culture in this country, a football culture, we can't copy what the NBA and the NFL do 
we have to we have to look at promotion relegation. That means for you know for argument's sake, say you know you you uh, you got that role, you got Galati's uh, the pre- <laughs> presidency. What would what would you what change would you make? I mean, you, you've got a, you've got a unique standing as you've seen, you know, from uh, grassroots all the way up, you know, for player development. What what change would you make yourself? Yeah, I think that the, in terms of the overall landscape. Um, is is settling and making a commitment for a while on a what Amer- what American what U.S. football is. So we have we've struggled for a long time. Um, I mean, even when we started the MLS, we didn't have we didn't you couldn't draw a game. You had to have a shootout at the end of it because we had to make it uniquely American. But then now we've incre- now all of our, our fans here in, in the MLS sing English football songs. Now the promotion relegation debate's back again. Klinsman brought in German Americans to play on our national team. Other people think we should all be Mexican Americans on our national team. So we're, we're very, we're, we're more divided by our size, but also by our relative um, uh, newness in the in the football space relative to you know a European country and things like that. So I would I would like to see more ethnic diversity in our playing. I'd certainly like to see more African-Americans being involved in football, which would mean a conscious effort to get more uh, African-American coaches and engage African-American populations um, in the benefits of football, uh, how it could potentially lead to better college and things like that. I'd like to see um, the strengthening and the solidarity of our second division so that it becomes a legitimate um pathway becomes like the relationship maybe between the championship and and the premier league in some capacity and then the other thing we have to do is we're so strong in the women's game but we've really struggled to get our women's professional going and um, the best way i've seen that happen is when the professional women's club is is connected to the professional men's club so portland houston um trying to think of a couple of others uh but that's that's another thing because we we do i mean Winning World Cups in the women's game and having players like Alex Morgan at Man City really, really speaks highly for American soccer in general or U.S. soccer in general. And I would want to see that carried on because then the men have some aspirations, too. So I think there's a lot. But I, I, I just think it needs coming up with, with increasingly with an identity. What is our identity? I suppose that's the problem. Look, we're having a bit of like a problem with that in England at the moment as well. And same in Australia. So people saying, you know, we've had a way of doing things in the past, which has not brought a lot of success. We've got to change and it's then convincing everyone that actually we can actually change and, you know, have a, a, a new identity, which is successful. I suppose that your, your, your job is to try and convince those people, right? Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, you, the challenges in England, because a couple of years ago, I would have said the Premier League was more relevant in English football than the national team to some extent. I mean, that's kind of an amazing thing to have to say, but but then you see the success of the 17s and the 20s in the World Cup, and maybe that shifting back again, where the great work of the Premier League clubs is now benefiting our national teams directly, and there's sort of more of a symbiotic relationship. Um, you know, to my mind, long-term, of a robust MLS where people can go and see football live on a regular basis and be behind their team for a year is what we should be look, focusing on and then celebrate national teams, CONCACAF, World Cups, Gold Cups and stuff like that. So for me, the, the, the professional league 
has to be what leads it all because it's the constant connection. When I first came to the country in the 80s and 90s, football here was an event. It was like, you know, a couple of months or a month every summer or every other summer, we all got interested in football. And then you couldn't really find football the rest of the time. Now, uh, an MLS season is 34 games. It goes from March till December with the playoffs and everything. And that's how the real fans and the real interest and the media will stay engaged with us rather than these hotspots of a World Cup or a Euros or a Gold Cup. Interesting. So now moving on just um, to the conference. Obviously, that's, uh, you know, that's how I, I, you know, that's, I attended the conference last year and I'm looking forward to this year in Philly. Just tell us a little bit about the conference. What's it, what's it about and the history behind it? Yeah, so it's it's called, referred to as the convention. Um, it moves around the country a little bit, but it's always the biggest on the East Coast. So we'll be in Baltimore and Philadelphia quite a lot um, on an annual basis. So it's five days in January. Um, some, some component parts. So there's a ton of annual banquets, awards and recognitions for people that are all Americas, people who've won. Um, different uh, awards and rankings, so like Ballon d'Ors, if you will, and things like that. So that's part of it. There's a massive exhibitor show, so people selling everything from uh, a team solution app to goals to field lighting, travel companies, massive exhibitor show. Um, the MLS and NWSL drafts, because we have the draft in, in professional football here, so those occur there. And then the part that I'm the most involved is the educational piece so field sessions classroom sessions um, various educational programs so we'll have about 4,500 people come just to sit and watch field sessions by people like Romeo Jozak from Croatia or Dick Bate um, who's a little bit under the weather right now uh, Bill Bezik is coming because the Americans love Bill Bezik and the psychology stuff uh, Del Bosque is coming uh, Sir Alex was there a couple of years ago um, the LMA sends a contingent every year, so that's good. So we've had Stuart Pierce and Hope Powell and Avram Grant, so really good people. The event's fantastic because it's, it's, it, it ticks boxes for education and sales and all that, but a lot of networking, a, a little bit of socialising, probably a little bit too much socialising for the younger conventioners who don't work out how to survive five days. Um, and we'll sell, like I said, we'll, we'll probably do about 11,000 nights of hotels and we'll black out the city. And um, it's just a fantastic event. And the nice thing about it is probably the nicest thing, appreciating how difficult it can be in Great Britain right now, too. You can be walking through the convention and run into national team managers, um, the professional staff from Barcelona or from Chelsea or uh, from the Irish FA or whomever. And you can stop and have a cup of you know, maybe a cup of coffee or a quick chat. It's, people are very, very friendly in this environment, which I think I speaks to the global game. And what I identify as a decrease in the amount of arrogance across the sport. So people are much more accessible today, in my opinion, and sharing than they ever were, you know, 10 years ago and certainly 20, 30 years ago. Quite, it's quite a unique event. I mean, I was blown away last year just by the, um, the phenomenal uh, quality of the, uh, the people delivering the sessions in terms of, you know, obviously I'm very much interested in elite levels, the elite level. And as you know, you know, from the academy manager of Schalke to Romeo, as you mentioned, you know, you, you, you do, you do get a fantastic uh, group of coaches together. Yeah. It, it, it's very um, American or us in as much as we probably, we probably got ahead of ourselves a little bit because you, you know, you get to watch Romeo Jozak for 55 minutes. Absolutely 
absolutely superb. And then you've got to move on to the next thing. So um, we, we're almost damned by having too much opportunity and too much diversity. And so, you know, it's always funny because if, if you're a presenter and you go up against the Barcelona session, if the Barcelona session is really bad, still people want to go and see that. So you're left in a ballroom or a field session by yourself doing your session and it could be really good. There isn't always a direct correlation between the status of the presenter and the quality of the session. So sometimes you can go to, um, you know, some of the lower lights in terms of their resumes and they just put on cracking sessions. And then you might go to an academy uh, from Europe and, and the session is quite, quite fundamental or quite, quite dry. So you have to, you have to do a little bit of um, uh, moving around. Um, very often what you do find, so for example, there's a, a lad from uh, uh, Celtic who came over a couple of years ago, approached us called Willie McNabb. And Willie works for the international programs at Celtic and he's, he does a lot of sales for them as well. But he's just a really, really good presenter, very accessible, very friendly, very chirpy. And now he's got a little bit of a cult following. So Willie comes over every year, works for Celtic, does the business bit for Celtic. But he'll always have a few hundred people at his sessions because he's just got a reputation, as did Romeo or does Romeo, as does Dick Bate and, you know, a, a number of other people, too. So give us a, a taste of who to expect this uh, this January. If people don't know who's who's going to be attending. Um, so uh, Emma Hayes, obviously, is, has been coming for a number of years from Chelsea Ladies. Really, really popular. Uh, Del Bosque is going to do classroom stuff. He's not going to do field stuff. But I think the you know what we'd like him to talk about is that golden period of of um, for Spain sort of eight, ten, and twelve that type of thing. Um, you can occasionally, and it doesn't happen until the last minute when a Pele shows up or a Sir Alex shows up, and they're very much meet and greets. It's not like they're going to do field sessions. Bill Bezik, who was at United with McLaren um, when McLaren was Sir Alex's assistant, and then was with with uh, McLaren in England and at Middlesbrough. He does a lot of the sports psychology stuff, hugely, hugely popular in this country. I know in the sports psychology realm, opinion can be divided in, in England, but here he's massive. Um, Schalke is coming, the DFB is coming, the English FA will be there. Uh, the Scottish FA always has a great presence. Uh, the Mexican FA is coming. Um, right off the top of my head, I can't list them all. It just it sort of gets a bit silly after a while because... How many, how many sessions are there? How many field sessions are there, for instance, in those five days? Uh, there's 180 educational sessions, wow. which means the three field spaces are going on the hour, every hour, for eight hours a day for three and a half days. And then if you've got three field sessions, you've got probably seven to ten classroom sessions. So any given hour, you've probably got uh, 10 to 12 choices of what you want to go see, if you want to go see a field session or classroom session. And then the classroom sessions have now divided into a lecture or maybe more like a round table. So you're sitting at a table with other uh, conventioners and maybe you, you, you're given a task to discuss and then the presenter brings it back in. And then um, we've also got some Q&A panels as opposed to the lecture. So depending on your learning style, um, you can see, I mean, a lot of the grassroots coaches go straight to the field sessions. A lot of the more experienced coaches go to more of the 
lecture theoretical stuff because they feel pretty comfortable in the technical area and they want to come and hear, you know, Del Bosque's story or something like that. So thinking about the last few years, who's been, uh, what's been your favorite session or presenter that you, <laughs> do you fling back or a couple of uh, favorites? Well, apart from the sessions which I'm in, um, which I can tell you are always really good. I, I don't actually honestly get to see that much. For me personally, um, as somebody that's in this in this space as a professional, when you see a true master coach do it, it's just amazing. So Dick Bate, who wasn't a particularly successful manager in Great Britain, and maybe management's not what he does, but when you watch Dick Bate do a session, a lot of the grassroots coaches get bored and walk out because it's just so such minutiae, but it's just, you pinch yourself because it's quite logical, but the way he presents it, the detail, the orientation. So Dick Bates one, uh, I keep mentioning Romeo Jozak, I apologize, but I really like Romeo because he was with the Croatian FA and Dynamo Zagreb. Um, the, 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 we've had Real Madrid, Barcelona, and we've had the, um, uh, we've had the Spanish FA present, and they all present in a very similar methodological way. It's quite uh, functionally positional and it's quite technical and quite detailed. Uh, it, you struggle in translation sometimes because very often the guy's leading the session and the other guy's got the the, uh, the microphone. He's doing the translation. But I do like I do like watching the Spanish, not because you know I, I drank the Kool Aid and and just think Spain knows all about football, but their particular stylistic points and their pedagogy I really enjoy. So um, I like all those and I. I like um, I do enjoy going to the leadership team management sessions, but I like going to the ones that are more um, scientifically grounded as opposed to the ones which are more anecdotal, because uh, I don't really need to buy more books about people's, uh, you know, stuff. So. And then what about I mean, so uh, obviously a lot of unfortunately, a lot of people won't be able to make the trip over. Or yeah, Billy from from England or from part of is there. How can they access um these resources, they can't do it. Yeah, that's a good question. So one, we're probably only a year or two away from making this a live streamed event. So it could be a virtual symposium. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of amazing to me. It hasn't been driven that way before. But all of the sessions are recorded um, and then they're available uh, for, for want of a better term, for purchase. So you can, you can buy three hours, eight hours. You can buy the whole darn thing if you want to. Um, and through our store. So we don't have any access to the content live, unfortunately, but almost immediately um, it's professionally recorded, videotaped and audio taped and then available for, for purchase. And there's a lot of that content from previous ones is on our website. So people can go and have a look at it and poke around. And what do if I, you know, I'm a member obviously, but tell people they become a member. What do they, what are the benefits? What's, you know, what do I get from my membership? Yeah. So a European and international, Currently, the, the primary thing is if you are in this country, discounted access to the education program, uh, um, discounted access to convention. So your membership reduces the price of attending convention. And then we have um, a soccer magazine, which we publish an educational magazine seven times a year. The international guest gets that. And then we have a number of um companies we we do products with online and there are various discounts which would apply to a european member so uh you know i don't know why you'd want to 
necessarily buy balls and cones from this country, but some of the educational content and products. So that's that's an international membership, and they've re the price of that is is negligible because, frankly, we can't supply the full the full benefit unless you're actually in this country. An American um, member um, gets the key is this insurance is really really huge in our country. So a lot of our coaches will work for a college or a club, but then they'll go and do a couple of freelance sessions. They'll come and work for me in coach education or they'll go off and do a clinic. And they're incredibly liable um, for the physical and emotional well-being of the student, the athlete. And then they're also liable for their own health if they you know, trip over a ball or get, get um, injured. And so that's, the, that's one of the huge benefits that we provide along with some other things like we're trying to do more in the career space, uh, relocation. So coaches get fired a lot. They have to sell houses, move. We're helping with those types of things. So we're becoming um, quite a trade organization, a little bit akin to what the LMA does as almost a representative union, if you will, for league managers. We try to be that as a full service for all coaches. And so what, what advice would you give to a young aspiring coach making his, making his or her way in the world and wanting to... Um you know, go, get all the way to the top of whatever level they want to work at? Okay. Well, uh, it's easy to say now that I'm old and, and um, sage-like, but the first thing you have to do, I think, is, is, is be very self-aware. So if you are a, a young coach, but you have responsibilities to a family, so you've got to put food on the table, you might make some decisions which are not your most... Um, favorite they don't get you where you want to be they don't put you in the environment you want to be but your priority is to is to make enough money to pay the rent if on the other hand you're young you can live out of a, an equipment bag you might be able to go to i don't know spain for six weeks and go live on a floor in some bloke's apartment and go out and watch a top professional club train and then learn the language so the, the challenge is everybody hears a story and wants to emulate somebody's story they heard, but they don't match the person's experience with their experience or their opportunity. So the first, that's the first thing. I don't think, um, so that's the first thing, be true to yourself, be self-aware. The other part of it is at the point where you think you're going to trademark your unique style and it's, you know, Ian Barker, the Ian Barker method trademark, then hopefully somebody will hit you on the head or you'll know to quit because the game is global. The game tends to cycle with content, um, playing styles, playing formations. And so I, th I think you've got to be, you have to be humble and don't expect that you know all the answers. Now, I'll give you a brief example. And if you're a Chelsea lover, um, I've got to meet Mourinho a couple of times. And I've got to meet Klopp a couple of times. I was I met Rafa Benitez at Napoli for an hour, which is fantastic. And they're actually much more humble in real life than the public persona that they give, because they you know they get up in the morning and they put their trousers on one leg at a time, and they they talk about their families and their relationships. And so I think humility for a young coach is part of it, um, because at the at the moment when you've just won the championship, um, you're top of the game. Um, really very often the only way to go is down for a while. Um, and when you're at the very bottom, there's another game coming up. There's another opportunity coming up. So 
So I think self-awareness and humility would be my primary advice. And then get the badges, absolutely get the badges, because I think you look like a fraud if you walk into the space and say, I didn't do the badges because they're crap and I don't need them. I will have a discussion with anybody happily about how crap the education is once they've done it, but don't stand on the outside and then fail to put yourself in the environment and then pretend you're an expert because I really resent that type of behavior. And what about advice to a young aspiring player? Uh, well, um, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the challenge I think in player development right now globally is enough intrinsic love of the sport. Um, so as older people, we can all moan about how great the fields are and great the facilities are. And it wasn't like that when I was a lad. Well, that's that's crap. Why would we make the kids? Why would we go out of our way to make the kids miserable just because we were miserable when we were kids? But I don't think kids play enough um, spontaneously, which can be difficult in environments and things like that. So, you know, if I was if I was recommending to a, a young player, try to find outlets outside of the academy environment or the uh, highly stylized uh, environment that your club puts you in. Now, that might mean taking a complete break from football, or it might mean that you just go back out in the backyard and just play for the love of it. Um, and you still do your whatever, eight hours of training with the club, but you're doing more training by yourself. Um, I was at Southampton, uh, which is just a wonderful place to go visit. And Les Reed, what they do at Southampton is they still have the, the young pros clean the boots of the senior pros, which is a really tiny thing. But I think it does suggest to the young player that they haven't made it and it creates humility and it might make them think a little bit outside of themselves. So I quite like that sort of romantic notion of, of, of paying your dues. But I just think, you know, when you're a full time professional and you're getting paid more money than cents, it's a job. But when you're a young when you're a young person, it's still got to be a bit of love in it, I think. And, and trying to find that love is hard, I think, sometimes. Ian Barker, thanks very much. It's been fantastic. You're very welcome. And good luck with that five month old. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the MyPersonalFootballCoach.com Soccer Player Development Podcast. MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's dynamic ball mastery program is the world's leading online individual technical training program, proven and developed at the highest level in the English Premier League. Sign up now to train like the pros and take your game to the next level. Master the ball, master the game.